Amen. Amen. Well, that was a mouthful. Uh, we read all the names in uh, this genealogy. And to introduce this passage this morning, I first want us to draw attention uh, to the various Gospels that we have in the Bible. As you know, we have four books uh, that depict the life, the birth, life, and ministry, and death of Jesus Christ. And we call them the Gospels. They are the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books, four Gospels, they're not four different stories, but they're actually the same story. Four different accounts of the same one story. And to illustrate what this means, uh, last summer, my wife and I, uh, we spent a few days uh, just visiting uh, various regions of Korea uh, just by train. And we experienced the distinct flavor of each region. And now, after the trip, uh, my wife Joanna, whenever she would uh, talk about her trip to her friends, uh, she would emphasize certain things. And she would leave out other things. She would add some of her own take on some of the things that she experienced. Uh, for example, she's going to talk about how much walking uh, she had done on that trip. She probably didn't walk that much ever in her life. And she's going to talk about all the beautiful pictures that she took. She's also going to talk about all the various desserts that she had on this trip. That's what she's going to emphasize. Now, me, on the other hand, when I share about my trip experiences, I'm not going to talk about the walking because the walking uh, didn't bother me at all. I'm not going to talk about all the beautiful desserts, even though they were delicious. But to me, I'm going to talk about all the spicy foods that I had during that trip because I love spicy food. So I got to taste all the spicy foods of each distinct region. Now, if you consider what I just shared, did Joanna and I, did we go on two different trips? No. We went on the same trip. Was she there? Yes. Was I there? Yes. But when we give our account of the trip, we're going to hear different aspects, different things emphasized, right? So in the same way, we see the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, same story, same Jesus, same a narrative, but different accounts, because they are meant for different purposes, spoken to different people. Now, this morning and throughout the month of Advent, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew. And so what's the distinct flavor of Matthew compared to Luke or John or Mark? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that the Gospel writer, he is writing particularly to Jewish readers people who come from a Jewish background, compared to Luke, who's writing to Gentiles, to foreigners, particularly Theophilus, who is not a Jew. But do you see that you're going to get different emphasis depending on which gospel you're reading? So the gospel of Matthew is going to be very, uh, uh, has a lot of these Jewish overtones, a lot of these connotations. And you have to think how a Jewish reader would see and read this gospel, especially the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. Now, in the gospel of Matthew, in this genealogy, we're going to see the very same uh, uh, emphasis towards the Jewish readers. And what does Matthew begin with? 
He begins with this genealogy of Jesus Christ because he knows that his readers, they're going to have to see this genealogy to see that Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah, truly the King that they have been waiting for. So with that introduction, uh, let's bow our heads one more time and let's ask God for his help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we study uh, just even this beginning portion of your gospel, Matthew, that your Holy Spirit will enlighten us, give us your truth. Lord, at first glance, it just looks like names upon names, but we know that every word is spirit-breathed, and there is truth, and there is a lesson, not only a lesson, but a gospel for us this morning. Help us to know and understand and embrace your gospel message this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the question is, if he's writing to Jewish readers, why does he begin his gospel with a genealogy? Why does he begin with all of these names? Because if you look in your Bibles, look at verse 18. If you look at the beginning of verse 18, it's going to read, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, doesn't it? And that's just a great introduction. You can begin the birth narrative with that by saying the birth of Jesus Christ happened in this way. But instead of that, Matthew, he begins with Jesus, the son of David, son of Abraham. And he lists all of the names, all of the ancestry of Jesus Christ. Now, why is he doing that? Because remember, Matthew, to his Jewish readers, he's going to prove to them that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of these promises, the promises made to Abraham. He is the future king that's to take heir after King David. So Matthew is trying to make this connection, saying this Jesus of Nazareth, he is the one that we have been waiting for the one that's been promised all throughout the Old Testament. So he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to King David and all the way back to Abraham. And you see that all of that is going to be forward pointers, pointers to Jesus Christ. And Matthew wants his readers to pay attention to that. Uh, Not yet, not this slide yet. So what Matthew is doing, he's writing a genealogical resume. And I hope those words stick in your mind. He's writing a genealogical resume, and he's saying that Jesus is the one that our nation has been waiting for. He's the one that's going to come and free us from slavery and oppression. He's the one that's been promised to Abraham. He's the one that's going to take the throne after King David. And he's going to legitimize that Jesus is truly the heir, truly the Messiah, truly the Christ. And now you can show the slide. And you can see the connections that Matthew is making back through King David, back to Abraham. And see, this genealogical resume is going to show reasons why that we can believe and trust that Jesus is our Savior. Back then, if you wanted to be a king, you needed to show, you need to prove yourself, prove that you are rightly heir to the throne. And how would people do that? If you wanted to prove that it was your rightful place to be on the throne, you would show people your genealogical resume. You would show your ancestry to say, look, 
I am in line to be king. My parents, my grandparents, and so forth, they are the royal line. And if you can show that proof, that's how you become on the throne. That's how many kings became, uh, got to be on the throne back then. And that's the same thing that Matthew is doing, doing, showing that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel by tracing him all the way back. And that's their resume. And a lot of us, we know what a resume is like. A lot of the college students, that's something that you guys have to be updating time and time again with activities and, and awards and, and job experiences. And even though today, what we have to validate or to legitimize ourselves and our value, we have resumes, but back then, what they had was their ancestry, their family. It was that important to them because back then, it was so much more uh, family-centered. It was so much more communal. That's why you read in books when people introduce themselves. How do they introduce themselves? I am Thor, son of Odin, right? Lord of the Rings, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn. We, do, we know all the ones who are reading books these days, right? And that's how they did it back then. Because who you were, who your family were, it gave you a sense of identity and it legitimized whatever worth that you were claiming. Now today we have resumes, don't we? Now if this is Jesus' resume, and we have to now consider how would a Jewish reader, when they first pick up this Gospel of Matthew and look at Jesus' resume, what would point out? What would stick out to them? What would they see? And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And we see that in Matthew's genealogy, that there are a lot of surprises that we might not have noticed at first glance. And we're going to see that some of them are going to be that much shocking to the Jewish reader back then. For example... We see in this genealogy, we see the names of women. Back then, women were not included in your ancestry because it was a patriarchal society. If you wanted to legitimize your place on the throne and give sense of identity in regards to family, you don't include the names of women. But here in Matthew's genealogy, we have the names of five women. And not only do we have the names of women, all of these women they are associated with some embarrassing events of Israel's history. And let's see a few of them. First of all, we see Tamar. And if you remember Tamar, she was the wife of Judah's son. And the Bible tells us that Tamar's husband, he died because he was wicked in the eyes of God. And after he was struck dead, she was a widow. Now back then, if you're a widow you were very much in shame. You had this stigma about you because you couldn't produce a family. And because of that, God, he instituted a law. He's saying that if you are a widow and you have no children, then the brothers of the deceased husband have to take you in and have to produce children with you so that you can have a family. And that was what was to happen back then when Tamar's husband died. So she went to her husband's brothers to be brought in, and they all rejected her. In fact, they all wronged her. She went to her father-in-law, Judah, saying, give me justice, tell your sons to fulfill their duties. And he neglected their justice as well. So the story goes that she tricks her father-in-law to being with him 
and she bears a child. And we see that event being specifically brought to mind in Jesus' genealogy. It's an embarrassing story to the Israelites. Not only do we see Tamar, we see Ruth and we see Rahab, two Gentiles, foreigners, meaning they weren't originally Israelites. And that's something very important to the Jewish line. They valued purity, saying that they are purely of Jewish descent. But see, we see two women here who are Gentile foreigners. If you remember, Rahab, she was a woman of the city, which is an aphorism of, you know, what kind of job she had. But she helped the Israelites sneak in to Jericho, and because of that, she was included in the line of Israel. Same with Ruth. She was a widow, but she was a Moabite. And if you know what a Moabite is, that means her ancestor was Lot, who had his children by having incestuous relationships with his daughters. Now, the Israelites, they would not want that kind of family, those kinds of names in their genealogy, but Matthew includes them. If you notice, we have the story of David and Bathsheba. And that story tells us that Bathsheba, she was originally married to Uriah. But during the springtime, when David was supposed to go out into war, he was lazy. He saw Bathsheba bathing across the rooftop. I don't know how many women bathe on a rooftop in broad daylight. But at the very least, David was very much at fault, being lazy and then being seduced and going after her. And not only that, he coordinated it so that her husband would die in battle and he tried to conceal his manipulative tactics. That's not something that you want to include in your resume, in your genealogy. But Matthew does so intentionally. And just in case the Jewish reader forgot, how does he write Bathsheba's name? He doesn't write her name. He writes, the wife of Uriah the very one whom David had killed, just so that you can very well know and remember that this David is the one who murdered, who committed adultery, and it was with that wife, Bathsheba, that he had his son, Solomon, who took the throne. And it's not only the women. If you look after that, we see kings upon kings who are notoriously bad and wicked, all throughout Israel, they worshipped other idols. They, they, they uh, negotiated with other nations. They rebelled against the Lord. And so we have so many accounts of these evil kings, even after Bathsheba and Tamar and Ruth. Next slide, please. We see so much taintedness in this genealogy, don't we? So the question is, why would Matthew do this? If he's writing a genealogical resume that legitimizes Jesus to the throne to talk about how great Jesus is, why would he purposely include all of these embarrassing stories of Israel's past? All the Tamars and Ruths, all the evil and idolatrous kings. And I think that answer, the answer to that question is going to show us that even in this genealogy that's just name upon name, that we see the gospel narrative here. You know, one of the hardest things about writing resumes, if you've experienced it, is to make it sound really professional, right? To make it really sound like you know what you're doing. Make it sound like you've had a lot of experiences. And the problem is, if you don't, 
you don't know what to write. It's just empty, right? But there is a way to even make the most boring or even the insignificant task very professional. For example, say that you had a job stocking shelves at Acme. And you're very much concerned about how to make that very impressive uh, to the people interviewing you. Well, how can you change the wording? Instead of writing stocked shelves at Acme, you can write efficiently managed retail sale product displays and assisted with customer fulfillment to ensure satisfaction. Sounds good, right? You can write, I improved sales by maintaining appropriate inventory and advising management about potential high-risk inventory issues. All that is is saying we're out of water. (laughs) But you can phrase it in a way to show that your resume is actually packed of experiences and professionalism. Say that the only experience you had was mowing lawns. Well, how can you change that up? Instead of writing mowing lawns, you write, I work directly with project management to implement daily plans and schedules for ground maintenance to meet customer expectations. I recommended potential improvements for customer properties regarding planting, fertilizing, and mowing. Sounds really good, right? I see all the college students writing notes on how to change their resumes. But that's how the world works today. You put your best on your resume. You know, last year there was an article uh, that became really popular about a Princeton professor by the name of Johannes Haushofer. And Johannes Haushofer, he became well-known because he wrote this resume, and it wasn't a resume of his achievements, but it's what he called a resume of failures. And on this resume of failures, he wrote all of the failures he had in his lifetime. So on the top of this resume, he writes the degree programs that I did not get into. And he lists all the rejections, Cambridge University, Harvard, Stanford. Next section, academic positions that I did not get, Berkeley, Harvard, MIT, Yale. Next section, awards and scholarships I did not get. And he goes on and on. At the bottom of his resume, he writes meta failure or or special failure. And he writes, out of all the things that I have done, this resume of failures have gotten more attention than my whole life combined. And this resume of failure, it caught on very quickly. People read this, and they were tweeting about it. They were saying how this was, in a strange way, inspiring. But to me, I don't know if it's that inspiring. I might be a little bit cynical, because when I look at this, it just goes to show that all that's being taught is, you may have a lot of failures in your life, But as long as you learn from your failures, as long as you get up and persevere and grit your teeth, there will be success that comes down the road. Because Johannes Haushofer, even though he had a resume of failures, if you look at his actual resume, and I did some research, he actually graduated from the University of Oxford, Ph.D., He graduated with a PhD, another one, in economics from the University of Zurich, summa cum laude. Got his bachelor's degree at Harvard. And if you look at all the teaching positions, Princeton, Harvard, MIT, and the list goes on and on and on. So what do I get from this story? Yes, he might have had all these failures, but he got up, tried again, grit his teeth, he persevered. And eventually did get into a lot of these places that he was trying to get into. 
Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard. And if you correlate this situation with a lot of us today, uh, like me, you might be thinking, you know, that doesn't sound like me at all. Because yes, I do have my failures in my resume, but I don't have all of these successes after the fact. I don't have the Oxfords or the Cambridges or all of these other success stories because to be honest, when I read this article and it talked about how he was so brave to write his failures, it actually, it actually helped him. Because when he wrote his failures and then people see how successful he's become, all people are thinking is, wow, you are so great to not let the failures bring you down. The fact that you persevered and you fought through and that you actually became successful. But the problem I have with that is, you know, for a lot of the people in this world, we don't have those success stories. What if you don't have the later Oxfords and the Cambridges, the other successful positions that you received after your failures? And I'm not talking about just academic or career success. What about all the failures of life, relationships, the failures that you might have had as as a parent, as a husband, to be able to love your wife with all of your heart, just like you love God, your job and your role as a student or a son or a daughter, your struggles. Say that you struggle with various sins and pride and anger. There are many times when you lose your patience all the time that you're succumbing to lust time and time again and you have your list of failures and if I ask you the question what's on your resume of failures I think all of us has many things to write but if you're like me what if you don't have a list of the successes after those failures what if you're not like Johannes And that all you have, the only thing that you have in your life is failure upon failure, Tamars and Rahabs and Bathshebas. Then what? You know, there are a lot of failures that the world experiences, that all of us do. And if the only thing that we're supposed to take away is, you know what, just get up, try harder, Learn from your mistakes and then go get that success. If that's what we're going to embrace, I don't want to be a part of that. Because how different is that? How different is that from the rest of the world that keeps telling us that you have to become somebody, you have to accomplish something, and only when you do, then you can justify your existence, how much money you make, how well-behaved your kids are. If that's what you're going to look to for your sense of worth, I don't think I can be applied to this scenario. And at the end of the day, all that we're taught in this life is that whatever insecurities you have, whatever failures that you may have, just like a resume, that all you have to do is cover it up, right? Yes, you may have a list of failures, but if you have all the successes, if you have more successes than your failures, then you're okay. Or maybe you can kind of change your failures, kind of word it in a way so that it actually sounds good. You know what I mean at an interview. What's the worst thing about you? I work very hard. Isn't that how we're taught? 
As long as you have some kind of, some sense of success in your life, it doesn't matter what kind of failure you might have had in your life. But my question is, what about the Rahabs in your life? What about the failures? It's the best the world can do is just cover it up. Make it pretty. Change it up. And then you'll be accepted. The question is, what if I can't? What if I can't cover it up? What if I can't change it? What if I don't have the successes to make all my failures look small? Because my failures, the way that I look at my life, they're very big. What then? You see, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we see a lot of these failures, don't we? But he does not cover it up. He doesn't change it. He doesn't package it in a way where it sounds nice. He says, David, the adulterer, the murderer, the one who had his child with the wife of Uriah, the Tamars, the evil kings, the Manasseh, the Ahazes, no cover up there. And when Jesus comes to earth, it shows us that the gospel, it's not about covering up our failures. And how do we know that? Well, think with me. How does Jesus come? How does Jesus come? If you look at the past of Israel's history, what do we see? We see illegitimate affairs. We see a lot of drama in families. We see a lot of idolatry. We see a lot of unroyal family lines. We see a lot of messed up things. And now if we operated in this world... Again, if you have a success after your failures, you're all right, right? Even though you might have had your mistakes in the past, if you can learn from it and then into the future, you can have this great success, then you're okay. So if we operate like that, then how would we expect Jesus to come? You would expect him to come in Jerusalem, in the temple, being born to a queen and a king, being born with all of these people surrounding him with fanfare and cheering, right? That's how Johannes operates. Yes, you have your failures in the past, but now, but now I'm going to do better, but now I'm going to be successful. Jesus doesn't do that. He's born in a lowly manger. He's born to a 14-year-old teenage girl who has no idea what she's doing who's pushed out and rejected by Joseph's family because the word has it that she had an illegitimate affair with someone else because she's pregnant. We have Joseph and Mary. They should have been born in Jerusalem. That's the capital city. But no, a lowly town of Bethlehem, as we read this morning. They should have been received by all these court officials, but no, they're rejected by the inn. The only people, the only things that are surrounding Jesus, they're not court officials, but barn animals. That's the way Jesus comes. He doesn't come in a successful manner. He comes in what Israel history shows us, in an embarrassing way, in a way that is weak, in a way that seems like it's still a failure, and there's no packaging it. There's no covering it up with all of these successes. He brings it as it is. And what does that mean? It means whatever failures you have in your life, the gospel tells us 
you don't have to cover it up. You don't have to have success upon success to make your failures look that small. The gospel tells us, come to Christ as you are, with your failures, and Jesus will meet you in your failures. He will redeem them, and he will make what seems like a failure in the world's eyes something so extravagant that even the angels come to join in praise. That's what the gospel says. There's no future success that you need to have in your life in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not dependent on what you do. It's not dependent on what you will learn or how you will change your life. It's not dependent on any of those things, but dependent on the fact that Jesus came in weakness, in failure, to identify with you, to redeem whatever failed past you may have. Here's the application, and we'll end with this. The final verse, verse 17 says, See, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That covers a span of 2,000 years. And throughout that time, what do you think the Israelites and the Jewish people, what do you think they're learning? They're learning time and time after again that they're failing to live up to God's law, failing to live up to God's expectations. And it takes them 2,000 years to get that, to understand that, that it's not about how much success you can have after your failures. You know what the point of those 2,000 years are? For you to finally get it, finally understand this. You're not going to be able to succeed. It takes them 2,000 years. The ability to find worth in what you do and in your accomplishments is not going to work. It took them 2,000 years, and I want to ask you a question. How long is it going to take you to come to that realization that no matter what success you may have as a parent, as an employee, as a student, whatever cum laude you may have on your resume, it's not going to work. In that movie, Chariots of Fire, if you remember, one of the runners named Harold Abrahams, that Olympic runner, you know what he said? They asked him, why do you train so hard? And he says, because I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Because that's how long the race is. Those 10 seconds are going to determine who he is as a person. And let me ask you, what are your 10 seconds? Is it the school? Is it that job? I'm speaking to the college students. Is it that job? Is it that amount of money? Students, is it that straight A? Is it hearing from people how great of a student you are? Parents, is it that picture-perfect family that everyone just looks up to? For singles, is it that marriage? Is it that companion? We can go on and on. Why? Because that resume of failures, we can go all day with that. The question is, are you going to wait 2,000 years to come to realize that you will never live up to God's expectations? 
But the gospel is Jesus comes in failure, in weakness, to identify with you, to tell you that you don't need to justify your existence because I've done it for you. You are mine. You are my son. You are my daughter. First Corinthians says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So if you feel like you are low, despised in this world, then you are blessed because you, in your humility, and if you can confess of your need for a Savior, you will be the first to embrace Christmas for what it is, the Messiah, your King, who comes in a lonely manger, marked with failures, so that you can be found in him. Amen? And let's pray. Just as we end our time, I'll invite everyone just to bow your heads. And here at Renewal, after the message, we take a few minutes to pray. And I invite you to pray to God, even if it's the first time praying to God in a long time. Perhaps there are things in your life that you've been clinging on to so tightly. And maybe that's what justifies your identity. And perhaps this message is telling you, let it go. Be found in Christ. Your identity is not found in what you do or who you are, but in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.